1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 219 being recorded live on Wednesday, May sixth, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey,
2: cool cats and
1: kittens. Oh, sorry, wrong show. Uh, Hey,
2: Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. About two months ago, we had our first live 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 listener event and uh, it was so popular that we had a lot of requests to do again we had we couldn't get to all the questions so we have a backlog of questions from that Jason before we jump in I see we've got some QA going on here um, one housekeeping thing is if you do want to ask a question we, we would love to do it live where we'll have you your audio come in and you can ask it uh, you know uh, using the audio so that when people listen to the podcast uh, they have a little variety in what they hear um, but before we do that, Jason, any road trips you're on report on or any news you want to go through?
1: I, I have done amazing road trips in the last two months. I've been to Russia. I've been to Europe. Um, you know, ordinarily, like I book all these gigs and I have to reserve like three or four days travel time to get to them. Um, and now I can do like three gigs in different continents in the same day. So it's it's a uh, uh embarrassingly more efficient. And I feel like I, I seem more credible when I'm further away and on a screen than I do when people get me in person. So, so yeah. Uh, have you gotten your joke timing down? I found on the, um, on the zoom, it's a
2: little bit harder to kind of like judge the audience with your time.
1: Yeah. I just assume, uh, I have my own laugh track. I play for my own benefit. Um, and so I just, <laughs> uh, I am just assuming that that works. We had
2: time to do a laugh track, but not our theme song. I'm hurt.
1: I'm prioritizing. Yeah, I apologize to all the live listeners. You didn't get to hear the show music that ordinarily gets added in post. Um, but if I were uh, a more diligent audio engineer, I would have arranged a way to play it for all of you uh, to get in the mood for tonight. My bad. Uh, Scott, more One thing I want... Oh, good. I was just going to say, like, uh, this is a, a three-day streak for me of goodness, like... Uh, may the force be with you day. Um, always a super important holiday. As you know, I have a young son that's like completely fixated on star Wars. So he's decided that that's the greatest holiday ever. Um, and with utter fear on his face, he asked me first thing in the morning on, on May 4th, uh, dad, do Jewish people celebrate May 4th day? uh and uh he was thrilled yeah yeah he was thrilled to find out that it's a non-denominational holiday um nice and then we transitioned seamlessly into Cinco de Mayo and I I did a lot of customer gigs with margaritas um the
2: the correct Star Wars holiday there is a competition is uh Return of the Fifth
1: got you uh I did not ah Revenge of the Fifth I I could have have stretched it out to two days I had no no idea
2: Cool, and then today was you get to podcast uh, so good it,
1: times Exactly uh, I feel like, uh, and a uh, special honor, we're already being Zoom-bombed Yeah uh, In the in, in the chat
2: uh, We gotta bring Olivia into the live discussion
1: Yeah, yeah, are you a legit person that's having fun with this, or are you a troublemaker that I have to uh, boot? A troublemaker Seems like Olivia should get booted yeah, about uh, the boot. Yeah, all right, bye, Olivia. It was good knowing you. Uh um, well, you're
2: booting Olivia. One yeah. of the things I wanted to talk about is there's been some more earnings since our last podcast last week. Last week we really focused on the Amazon um, Q1 results, which were pretty stellar. Um, and then since then we've had Etsy uh, this afternoon, uh, this morning was Shopify. It was yesterday it was Wayfair, and then this afternoon Square and PayPal. And I would say the, the overwhelming theme has been you know, everyone has seen this, this surge of activity due to the pandemic. Um, the PayPal CEO said he feels like digital payments have moved three years ahead into the future. Um, Square as well. One thing I didn't understand about Square is they blew away the top line, but the bottom line um, had a huge impact. I don't know if that's because when they sign up new customers, they get some really good rate or something. Um, and then Etsy was interesting. They uh, they have become the go-to place for handmade mask, which is uh, they're having quite a moment. So they've they sold something like, I think, th- um, three to eight million masks on their platform, which was amazing, um, you know, handmade face mask. And then Shopify um, just kind of crushed expectations. And uh, the one analyst I follow there, Colin Sebastian, he may be on, um he raised their price target from 4.75 to 8.20, and it's currently at 7.30. So, whoever asked for stock recommendations, that may be an interesting one to look at because it's kind of one of those, you know, um, playing the the guys selling the pickaxes and shovels versus the actual folks uh, doing the mining. So, uh, Shopify stock I think it's going to rip pretty good. Um, and then you and I have chatted about Peloton; they crushed estimates as well. And after hours, I saw they were trading up pretty substantially um and they haven't even been able to launch their new treadmill because it has this white glove in-house delivery that uh is not social distance friendly so um those are some interesting things going on on the stock side that have an e-commerce digital tie in
1: yeah uh, uh are we jumping into the stock question or were you just uh, you were pre- that was just kind of a pre-answer jump jump uh, uh, yeah, so a like I'm the world's worst at stock advice, and and uh, what what I've learned is, it turns out it's not all that helpful to predict what companies are going to do well and not do well. Like, what's more important is to understand what's in or not in the existing price if you want to make money. Um, so, uh, so with that huge caveat that I'm usually wrong, uh, I'm going all in on uh, the pick pickaxe and shovels. Uh, and I'm going to suggest some stocks like um, some of the micro fulfillment centers that that grocery stores are now buying. Right. Like, so my premise is digital grocery before COVID-19 was three of, of, uh, percent uh, of grocery sales. And there was a prediction that they might get to five percent by 2022. Uh, digital grocery is at 10 percent right now. So basically, we've jumped forward at least five years in the future of digital grocery. And huge caveat in digital grocery, it's wildly unprofitable. Um, so when the retailer has to pay for all the grocery picking and the grocery delivery, grocery delivery doesn't make any money. So the the way retailers are going to ultimately make money on this digital grocery is get you to pick up your own groceries via curbside pickup and use a robot to pick the order instead of paying a, a a human being to pick the order in the store, and so these these robots for grocery stores are called micro fulfillment centers. Um, and there's at least uh, three of them uh, out there that have big pilots with grocers right now, um, and they all have have reported more than double digit um, sales growth since the beginning of the pandemic. And so it was super early in their evolution, and so the um, the the fact that they're um, uh, already seeing this this uh, spike in demand like bodes probably really well for them so that's companies like uh, uh, alphabot and uh, takeaway and uh, I'll think of a couple others I'll put in the show notes tonight
2: what about? Um, should we hit the audience up for some questions
1: yeah uh, I do see a couple hands or I thought I saw at one point a couple hands raised um, I if anyone wants to chat, I think hit the little hand raise there. Yeah. Should we start with a while we wait for someone to raise their hand? Should we start with a? Here's Michelle. Let's uh, hope this isn't a crazy zoom bomber. Let's we'll see what we got. Uh Oh, I see it. Hang on, Michelle. We're turning you on. Hey, Michelle.
3: Hi, guys. How are you? You're
2: live on the Jason and Scott show. How are you?
3: Ah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is great. My first live podcast.
1: Uh, Awesome. Um, We're excited for you to be here for the rest of the listeners. um, You are a past guest on the show uh, when you were with Euromonitor and you've actually started a new gig recently with uh, Salesforce.
3: Yes. I, uh, I now work at Salesforce. I started in early March. Um, if there's one place to start working at during a pandemic, Salesforce is definitely a, it's a great company and I'm really enjoying, uh, my time here.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it, Have it seems, met seems Mark like they're off yet. Oh, so go ahead, Scott. Have you met Mark Benioff?
3: Not yet, but it's definitely on my to-do list
2: <laughs> about the top of the Salesforce tower.
3: Also on top of my to-do list, once it's reopened, I'm also excited okay. about our new tower that's coming in Chicago. Um, the, the top floor will be uh, open I for events. This. So oh. I hope to host quite a few events uh, once it's built in three years. <laughs> nice. Yeah, my cool. my question is, um, are there any topics or themes or issues in the retail that aren't getting enough attention um, that you think that we should be aware of.
1: Uh, good one. Um, I have a few opinions, but Scott, did you have something you wanted to say? Uh,
2: I would say one of the, so you go to these conferences, right? And there's all the, the talk in the front of the house. And then there's this back of the house talk. I, I would say the back of the house talk I hear the most in e-commerce. and It's kind of bubbling out now. Is the sustainability, sustainability and scalability of this kind of direct to digital brands? Um, so, does DNVB have legs? Can you build something over a hundred million? Were some of these things anomalies like Dollar Shave Club and some of those, or you know, are is this kind of giant gold rush of these? Um, digitally native vertical brands gonna you know will it sustain or will it die in a big fire pit of people that don't make it through so so i think that's really interesting to think through um you know at the same time you know whenever i'm watching tv i'm seeing a lot of ads for these things now ad ad rates have come down because traditional advertisers are kind of on pause so you're seeing a lot of these kind of what i would call more direct response kind of ads on tv um so it's it's an interesting topic um that that i don't think is getting enough probably coverage
1: Yeah. Um, And again, it depends on what echo chamber you're in and what you hear uh, in terms of what you think might be covered or not covered. Um, But I'll tell you in in conversations with retailers, I'm still somewhat shocked um, how unrealistic a lot of retailers seem to be about. Um, the likely duration of the impact of all of this. Um, so, you know, we like we talked to lots of retailers that are, have like this three stage plan or this four stage plan. Um, but the the final stage of their plan is almost always back to normal. And by normal, they mean pre-COVID-19. And And back to normal is almost always the end of 2020 or maybe the middle of 2021, um, and I'll be honest, both of those things somewhat surprised me. Like, I, I don't think we ever go back to uh, pre-COVID-19. I think there's enough things that are permanently going to change that retail and commerce in the U.S. are going to be wildly different in the future. And so I think just the notion of going back um, is is uh, sort of quaint. Um, and, you know, frankly, like we, you know, we've actually brought in some, some epidemiologists and, and some immunologists, um, to sort of help a scenario plan. And it just doesn't seem like you talk to any credible expert that really sees this ending, um, or, you know, go, going back to the kind of things where, where we all get to go in person to a trade show or, or, um, you know, go, go to these big mass group things, Or frankly, have unlimited traffic in a retail store until we have a full blown and widely distributed cure um, for for the virus. And realistically, the fastest uh, of a vaccine's ever been produced in the history of the world is five years. So let's imagine that with the crazy resources marshaled, we we do it way faster than that. And we do it in 18 months. You still got to find a way to get seven billion doses out into the world and get everyone to take it. And oh, by the way, a lot of vaccines require more than one dose. Like there's all this negative news that makes me think um, that we're going to return to a lot of our old activities, but in a significantly modified way for probably two years. Um, and I, I like don't hear that a lot when I talk to people thinking about their plans. When, when I talk to retailers that are forecasting their sales Like, none of them are thinking that, like, for the foreseeable future, they're not going to be allowed to let an unlimited number of customers in their store. Like, that's that, you know, they think of that as a a very short term thing. And I, I, you know, I hope to be wrong, but uh, I I think they're missing it. What what about you, Michelle? Is there anything that that's uh, that you feel like people aren't talking about enough?
3: Well, I am particularly curious about returns um, because we see all of these—you uh, know—we see all the metrics for digital commerce, commerce rising, uh, but we know obviously there's a high return rate uh, associated with, with with e-commerce, particularly in clothing and footwear. So I'm I haven't seen too much around the returns uh, issue and has return rates. You know, have have they dropped down because people, you know, aren't aren't buying what they don't need. They're not necessarily buying three items; only keep one. Um, or are return rates holding steady. Sort of a the shift in consumer behavior, and then b we are seeing a little bit more around the actual logistics, doing the returns. How do you keep the merchandise clean and safe, and how do you process it? Uh, but yeah, I'm really curious about the return issue and. How that's uh factoring in um into the situation,
1: yeah, yeah, it's a great topic and in my um observation at the moment has been like the categories that are most up in e commerce are not the categories that traditionally had super high return rates right so uh, digital generally always has a higher return rate um than in store uh but in apparel for example it's 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 much more acute um and you know, apparel sales online have been pretty soft right now, um, and so then you know then the retailers that are really booming have temporarily um, uh, sort of uh, canceled their their return policies, and so so like if anything, there's a slight extra kiss right now in profitability um, that that a lot of these retailers are seeing lower returns because either they're not accepting returns or. There's extra friction on the part of the customer to do returns, and so they're just not doing it. Um, so sales of the high return items seem way down, um, but returns seem way down. Honestly, though, in my mind, that's getting overwhelmed. There are all these other costs of e-commerce sales that are artificially high right now um, that, you know, are more than eating up the margin uh, that that retailers are gaining by by this, you know, what I presume is a temporary, um, abatement of returns. Um, and so to me, like the top line story that we've heard in a ton of the earnings is, Hey, good news. E-commerce is up. It's not up enough to make up for all those sales we lost in the store. And those sales are way less profitable, um, than they would have been if they were in the store. And so margins are, are super, super challenged. Um, so yeah. I
2: follow the startups in the return space and it's interesting that I've, I've been at this like 20 or 30 years and you know, they, they always fall into two categories. There's ones that have like some digital solution where they don't touch anything and at the end of the day, they're kind of like issuing an RMA and doing some tracking, but like every retailer already has that. So I don't hundred percent understand how that solves anything. Um, or they go super heavy and they're like going to build a whole infrastructure and touch every product and grade it and resell it in some way. And, you know, I've never found a company that has some kind of like solution in the middle that that helps companies handle the the logistics. I remember in um, the late '90s, like this kind of 2002 to four time frame, there was a company called Return By, and they raised like 30 million dollars and they went and built this big returns facility. And I did a tour of it and it was amazing. You know, they had all these conveyor belts and things would go upstairs and go through this sorting system. And I was there and the whole I was like on a 30 minute tour and I was there for. You know, I saw five packages go by and some of them were um, the little ovens like the Barbie ovens, but they couldn't resell those because the food inside had gone bad. And then there was one Barbie with without a head. And I was kind of like, all right, I've been here 30 minutes. I've seen five products that probably can't be sold online. Um, you know, what how is this business sustainable at all? So, So returns are really hard because there's no, you know, there's probably some benefit of scale. And if there is, Amazon's going to win because, you know, they're, they're going to have the internal in-house scale that no one else is going to be able to get to.
1: Yeah. And the the related question, like, so like we have these kind of problems with like, how do we make stuff that gets returned safe uh, to resell um, or to get some some monetization from uh, for the apparel guys? If when and if the stores ever reopen and customers are allowed back in the stores, a big question is. Uh, how, you, how you make, um, dressing room safe, like both, both, you know, how do you keep the room itself safe? But what do you do with the clothes that a customer tried on and didn't buy? And so there are interesting questions there. Uh, do you have to disinfect that stuff and do you do it in a way that doesn't harm or damage the products? Um, you know, one, one idea we've seen a lot in China so far is the clothes that customers try on get quarantined. And so literally, you know, a customer tries on a dress, doesn't buy it. And they, they have to put that dress in a quarantined area um, for two days uh, before they bring it back out. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting new things that you wouldn't necessarily think about at first blush. Yeah.
3: Cool. Thanks for, thanks, for-
2: thanks for the
3: question. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for taking it.
2: Good luck in your new role and uh, send thanks. us a selfie with Mark Minioff.
3: Yes, I will. I'll get a Garfi first uh, with Rob. Yeah, okay.
1: I feel like the Garfi is easier. Yeah. Um, but uh I, I do think it's a funny time to start a new job because like you probably haven't seen the lower half of any of your coworkers yet.
3: I haven't. I haven't met uh uh any of them in person since I started. So
1: yeah, yeah uh, that's odd. Awesome. Well thank you much, Michelle. Uh I will uh safely remove you from uh uh to so you don't have to worry about making noise.
2: Uh, Anyone else have a question? Raise your hand. Don't take Olivia or Penny. Yep, you they're seem both to be, gone. Uh, bad actors. Okay, um, we do have a right one, right in one here. Let's uh, tackle that. Uh, Christopher asked, "What brick and mortar retailers are going to come out of this stronger, and why?" Jason, you want to take a first shot at it? Uh,
1: yeah. Um well uh your your friend Jim Kramer on Mad Money had a rant a couple of weeks ago where he said, like uh we're trending towards a world when there's only three retailers left in the united states and it, and in his mind, they were Amazon, Walmart and Costco um i I do think all of those retailers are super well situated um you know, obviously selling essentials is uh, very helpful right now. Having already leaned into digital and particularly omni-channel retail um, is super helpful right now. So, so those re- uh, and those particular three retailers probably had the best balance sheets in retail going into um, the pandemic. So so those are the kind of retailers that are going to do super well. Um, I didn't say this to Michelle, but uh, another one of the things I don't think is talked about enough is how many retailers are likely to go out of business because of this. And so these healthy retailers are going to grab up that share um, the and get even bigger. So we're going to see some huge consolidation at the top. Uh, but even the retailers that don't go out of business are likely going to right-size their brick-and-mortar fleets. And so I, we saw the first announcement. It was either today or yesterday. Um, but Nordstrom is closing 16 mainline stores, which is about 14% of its... Um, uh, mainline stores uh, and people were talking about being surprised by that. I actually think that's light. I, I think uh, a significant number of relatively healthy retailers are going to close something like twenty five percent of their stores.
2: I didn't see that Nordstrom sneeze. Yeah. So do I'm you here think for you. so? So no one's bought apparel during this time, and you know, one theory would be people are you know they have all this you know if, if they. have Survive this and, and have the means um, there's going to be a big kind of bump in buying apparel items. You don't think Nordstrom benefits from that, or you're just not sure they make it through to that point?
1: No. Well, so a, a couple, I think there's a bunch of headwinds against apparel. Um, so there, there is this premise there's all this delayed gratification and, and um, you know, in China, they talked about when they reopened stores, they were really hoping for revenge shopping is what they called it, which I thought was pretty funny. And this this notion that there was all this pent up demand for consumerism and they hope cons- customers would go out and help goose the economy by by aggressive spending in general, like whether well, there are there some occasions of that, particularly in luxury, like there's some luxury retailers that set records the first day they opened up and. Um, in general, we haven't seen that kind of revenge shopping. And part of the reason is, is because there's huge economic uncertainty. Almost every market is exiting from this um, quarantine period of the pandemic uh, in a a super deep and sudden uh, recession. And so consumer confidence is super low. Um and So in the apparel space, you just have all of these problems. You had a perishable inventory that's sitting in all those Nordstrom stores that they couldn't sell. Even though Nordstrom is pretty better than most at online, the majority of their inventory was locked in stores that were locked in malls, so they couldn't sell that inventory. It was perishable, um, so it's not it's not fashionable or desirable when they can reopen those stores most of their stores are at malls and there's a lot of evidence that customers are more afraid of going back to the mall than they are to freestanding stores um nordstrom didn't know what to and i don't mean nordstrom particularly apparel retailers d- haven't known what to do when they could reopen when there'd be demand for their goods again so they've their supply chains are all screwed up and they haven't ordered the next season stuff um and you know um a lot of occasions that people buy apparel for uh are now gone like you you didn't need to buy a prom dress this year you didn't need to buy an easter dress this year um you didn't you're not going back to school shopping at the moment um and so like even if there's a little pent up demand and they get a little bump when they reopen stores there's enough long term negativity in that apparel category uh that i think in any apparel every retailer is really smart to Maximize their liquidity right now and get their balance sheet in the best shape they can. But, but particularly in apparel, you you really need to buckle up for a pretty rough ride because it's it's not going to be pleasant. Yeah, one that
2: uh, I think is going to do well is uh, Apple. So I've had like ten instances where I wish I could go just run to the Apple store and grab a widget or something, and and then you know had to either wait or. Um I know several people at work have gotten broken computers they want to take in to have fixed and and you know the geek squad or whatever that is called is is broken, no geniuses to be had um How about uh you didn't say grocery? obviously those are going to do really well um and then we have i think the drug stores have done pretty well i've I've kind of wandered into a couple of drug stores and they've been pretty busy. Um, and one uh, here in town got some hand sanitizer, and it was like
1: oh, very, very exciting. exciting.
2: So, yeah. it caused a, a pretty big uh, you know, set of demand from that.
1: Yeah, in your in uh, Raleigh, that could be a huge event even before the pandemic. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah we get excited about little stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, grocery is uh, like obviously the shift to digital grocery is really exciting. So, if you're someone that's in the digital grocery space in particular. Um, like, this is a huge boom for you. For traditional grocer, it's a mixed bag because um the the shift to the digital channel is hugely problematic from a profit standpoint. And there's other bad stuff that's happening simultaneously. Uh, consumers are buying bigger packs of stuff, which are less profitable. Um, the the grocers' costs right now are skyrocketing. They're paying employees more. They they have all these extra cleaning processes. Uh, companies like get, get Spiffy charge them a fortune to come in and, and uh, um, clean their facilities in the morning before they open. They have restricted hours. They can't let as many people in. So they're like, it is good. There is higher demand for grocery. There's a lot of operational challenges with profitability. I think in the long term, those get solved. Um, but it's not going to be an overnight thing. Um, and, and then like really for grocery for it truly to be a win, there's a behavior that's happening right now that has to stick. And, and this is the most interesting thing to me about the pandemic as I talk about these kind of six different categories of consumer behaviors and which ones might be permanent versus which ones will regress after the, the quarantine. Um, at the moment, there's an enormous shift from consuming meals in restaurants to consuming meals at home. And if that, if a version of that behavior sticks, like it's clearly not going to stick to the level we're at now. But, but if the new normal is more skewed towards consuming at home, that, that obviously is a increases the TAM for grocery. But if the consumption goes back to the exact same levels and it's just a shift from in-store sales to digital sales, That's probably not an economic windfall for the traditional grocers. It might be an economic windfall for the Instacarts and um, uh, Fresh Directs of the world and a big Debbie Downer for the Peapods of the world that turned off their e-commerce right before uh, the pandemic. Oops. Yeah. Looks like uh, Christopher has a question. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, Christopher, let me find you here. And you are on. Hi, Christopher. Uh, Hey, guys. You guys actually just answered my question. Uh, tell us what it was so we can take credit. So it was the
0: uh, I was asking the the question that you just answered about what brick-and-mortar retailers are going to are going to come out of this stronger. Um, I've got I've got a backup question. Yeah, yeah. So the backup question, uh, you know, are there how are retailers handling training their frontline staff um, specifically, kind of best practices with COVID. And, and I asked the question selfishly, right? Like the two stores that I've been in, in the last month, uh, CVS has, has one-way aisles that their employees seem to disregard and, and, and Target you know, kind of has this, has this buy online, pick up in store option, but the, they haven't made the pivot of moving their, their pickup area from away from the cash wrap. And so what it does is it sort of creates this bottleneck of people. Um, so I, I don't know if there's sort of any examples of of companies that you guys have have found that you know are, are really kind of thinking about sort of how to address kind of a post COVID or, or in COVID kind of environment in a in a better better way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to take it first, Jason? Or sure. Uh, so so both. Hey, I was sort of quoted in a Wall Street Journal article this week with the exact same observation that like my local grocer has one way aisles and all the employees and professional pickers in the store totally ignore it. Right. So, um, and you know, uh, training customers for a new behavior in the store requires like a significant effort and a significant amount of messaging and reinforcement, none of which is happening right now. So that, that particular example totally agree with you. And side note, um, totally controversial and not good evidence that one-way aisles are safer right like so the the notion behind one-way aisles is you don't have to walk um uh cross someone in these narrow aisles where their droplet spray is almost certainly going to hit you if they're not wearing a mask um a the science on the on the droplet spread like your droplets are staying in the air long enough that, that you're walking through the droplets of the person in front of you, even though you're both walking in the same direction. So that's kind of a bummer. But the bigger problem is if one-way aisles make you spend 30% more time in the store to complete your shopping list, you're actually walking by more people and getting exposed to more risk and exposing more people to risk. Um, because of the one-way aisles, then you're actually reducing risk because of the one-way aisles. So that particular one's controversial. Um, direct answer to your question, uh, to me, the best retail operators in the world that are killing it right now are some of the regional grocery stores. So to me, an absolute hero of this is HEB, which is a regional grocery store in Texas, um, Great backstory. These guys identified the potential p- impact of the pandemic in January. Sent their whole executive team to China um, to talk to the the grocers in China that were being impacted by this. They came back. They put a plan in place in February. Um, they totally revamped their supply chain. Uh, they instituted all these touchless processes in the store, um, and they have a great engaged uh, employee base that they really uh, made ambassadors for all these changes. So like. Going to a regional like HEB or Hy-Vee in Iowa, um, those guys are executing really well. If you step up to a big national grocer, um, like to me, uh, Kroger uh, has taken an interesting leadership position because not only have they rolled out a lot of, um, best practices. They actually published all their best practices, launched a website and are giving away all of their, their employee training materials and assets to any other retailer that wants them. So if you're a smaller grocer that like needs signs explaining to customers what the new policies are, or you need audio messages to play over the PA system, or you need a new addendum to your employee handbook and training for employees, um, Kroger is giving all that away, um and so like it you know there there was an extra level of diligence in creating that that created the materials good enough not only for their own use but to share with the rest of the world so so prop props to them
2: yeah, I would say um you know at a thirty thousand foot level there's you know every consumer has fear, uncertainty, and doubt so so it's your job to try to give them peace of mind. And everyone has different response to this. There's some people that are pretty cavalier. Um, and then there's other people that are like super freaked out. Right. So, uh, the more options you can give people, then they can kind of use the risk. They can kind of, you know, choose their own risk path, if, if you will. Um, one of my best experiences during the pandemic was Best Buy. They have curbside delivery. So I did a normal BOPUS. So I did a buy online pickup in store. I needed to get some batteries for a, for a nest camera kind of thing. And, uh, um, then, you know, in the app, it kind of geofenced and it said, Hey, it looks like you're near the store. Are you ready for your curbside delivery? I said, yeah. So it did some smart things using the app. Um, and then I've done a lot of curbside delivery with some of the food and stuff. This one is like almost instantaneous. You know, the runner came out, then the runner like stayed pretty far from the car. And they went to the passenger side and they they actually asked, and they were wearing PPE and they asked, you know, can I set, you know, can I, you want me to hand this to you or just set it in the seat next to you? So there was like a lot of awareness on the, on their side about kind of seeing where my risk level is. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty high risk. I just kind of, it's my normal mode of operation, but it was really interesting that they were really sensitive to that. So, so that was one experience. I think, I think table stakes is you got to have PPE for, for all your staff. You can't, you know, that has to be a requirement. Uh, definitely gloves and a and a mask. Um, you know, the 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 more medical the mask looks, I feel better as a consumer. So some of these like cloth ones just kind of like or, you know, they have like a brand on them. I appreciate the brand, you know, as an entrepreneur, but like the fabric thing is a little dodgy. Um touch touchless payments, you know, I've been in a lot of these, I've tried using a lot of them, and it really uh Jason, you're like this when I went to a grocery store, it's called Fresh Market, and I used my Apple, I, I did touchless with Apple Pay. And then she's like, "I want to see the credit card." Well, I do have a physical Apple card, but she's looking for the digits, right? Plus, the thing generates random digits, is my understanding, right? It generates a one-use credit card. I tried to explain that to her, and uh, that did not go well. So then, so then I had to switch to ATM, and then I was like, "Well, while I'm here, I'll get some cash back." Um, and then, you know, I put in like uh, $50 cash back. She's like, "Well, the maximum's $40," but then the terminal had a $50 cashback button. <laughs> and, then, and then I was like, you know, the third time I was like, well, maybe this one, you know, maybe third time's a charm. And she was like, she didn't really even flinch because I, I guess it happens all the time that they have these things. So, so do the touchless stuff, but make sure, you know, I would have her, you know, some of the managers go through the experience to make sure it's really working flawlessly. Um, that was One, uh, the other thing I have found grocery shopping is I'm like the only non Instacart person in there. And by Instacart, I mean Postmates and all the other, you know, shipped and whatnot. So I feel like those people need some other workflow or something like their own registers or something like that, because they are, you know, they they take a lot of time to shop because they're kind of like looking at the app and they're kind of like, you know, and then they're scanning something. Um, I feel like it'd be interesting to have some other alternative way. Maybe there's like, one store that's designated just for them or something. I I don't know the answer to that, but it's kind of weird because I'm kind of like, I'm very transactional and they're clogging up the aisles. You know, there's literally like eight of them on an aisle and I'm trying to like juggle through them to get through the store.
1: Yeah. And there is, um, the that, that's, that was a problem when only 3% of grocery was online. And so now that we're at 10, like there's a lot more of those professional shoppers in the aisle and, and there are a lot more of those conflicts. Um, Like there are, you know, efforts around dark stores and those shoppers shopping from the dark stores Um, that some retailers are doing interesting things like they're having professional hours and shopper hours. So both um, Costco and Whole Foods are um, for the most part not letting professional shoppers shop the store at the same time as customers. They've they've narrowed the hours that they're open to customers and they have dedicated hours early in the morning and late at night for the professional shoppers. Um so all of this has allocation problems. Like, you know, you can just sell less um curbside orders if if you're limiting the hours that the pickers can pick, but but um since they all have uh, artificial caps on their density in the store at the moment, it makes more sense to have the shoppers in some hours and the customer's in other hours. So you're, you're seeing a lot of that. Um, definitely touchless payment is way up. And the the thing that's going to be interesting there is, um, you know, there's a lot of self-service uh, POSs in retail, particularly in grocery, that all have touchscreens, which are now super icky, right? And so you can imagine there's a rush to retrofit all of those. And the the non-touchscreen solution for all of those is going to be that your mobile phone interfaces with the terminal and you use the the interface on your own mobile phone. And so that's gonna be a new behavior we're gonna see rolled out and have to educate customers about. But I think, you know, going to those touch with systems, uh scan and go, which some retailers had experimented with um is is definitely gonna be bigger. So so I guess some of those those things are interesting.
2: I went through one today and they had put a thick Mylar bag over the terminal and it was so thick I could hardly press the buttons. I guess they must you know they must take that off and clean it or something or it may yeah know, maybe it's just designed or at least to want you to
1: believe there. that exactly uh great questions thanks very much christopher thanks christopher yeah thanks guys
2: all right we got ricardo and scott waiting by let's see what we got here
1: okay uh ricardo we are you are live hey hey
4: hi guys ricardo here uh recording to you from san francisco a uh, big kind of the show
2: Awesome. So thanks thanks for, for calling in. What's what's uh what's so on your what,
4: mind? What I'm curious is if you can talk a little bit about like the the PNL of a seller. How does it differentiate in the U.S. versus in China? You know, like our referral fees the same, our logistics cost the same. I think uh, I, I'm really curious. You know, I, I know China is as a percentage of retail e-commerce a lot more, and I think it's maybe because they don't have a lot of the physical stores that we have in the West, but. Still, when you compare it with other developing nations, still so much more ahead. So I'm just curious in your thoughts on that. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Well, a great question, uh, Ricardo. A couple of things. Um, so the dominant marketplaces in the US tend to be different than in China. So obviously Amazon's the the dominant marketplace in the US. And Amazon has a a um singularly high take rate. So they charge like a like compared to most other marketplaces, a very high commission for each transaction. Um, uh, Alibaba's Tmall, which would be the most analogous to to Amazon in China, has a way lower take rate. So first thing is the unit economics of the actual sale are more profitable for the seller because you're paying a lower commission. But that's a little bit of a f- artificial economy because... Um, Tmall is even in China is even much bigger than Amazon's marketplaces here. And, uh, so visibility and discovery of your product listings is non-existent. Like there's so many listings and so many products. Your product just isn't organically going to be found in China. And so, um, uh, Alibaba has a really low take rate because. They charge you extra for all of the marketing services and search visibility services. So what you end up doing is having to pay a lot more to the to Alibaba's marketing arm, which is called Ali Mama, to have your stuff show up. And and if you kinda compare apples to apples, like the 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 general um economics of the business end up netting out to be similar. By the time you you pay your Amazon marketing services and your take rate in the US or your Alimama services and your take rate in the China, those are similar. But digital commerce is way more penetrated in China. And um, uh, you know they've le- leapfrogged uh, brick and mortar, as you implied. So pre-COVID, Depending on how you define retail, uh, I'll go with a Forrester definition. 16% uh, of commerce in the U.S. was e-commerce. The rest was brick and mortar. In China, it was 38% before COVID. Um, so U.S. Today, uh, in April, 16% goes to 25%. Um, in uh, February in China, um, at the uh, the peak of the quarantine, uh, 38% went to north of 50%. So... Um, Digitally, you're going to sell a lot more goods. And then one other economic thing that's wildly different in China than the U.S. Uh, the cost of delivery is way lower in China. Um, so because there's so much inexpensive labor, um, you you can pay someone a very low rate to deliver anything in an hour to a f- in a five kilometer radius of your store. Um, and uh, so it enables you to offer all kinds of cheap delivery uh, of goods that that would the unit economics would never work in the U.S. Um, And frankly, that driver like those guys delivering all those things, I say driver, but a lot of times it's a bike or something else. Those delivery guys, that's a middle class wage in most tier one and tier two cities in China. So it the economics all around work out much better in China because of that. Scott, anything I, I botched there?
2: That's good. The payments I think uh, is a little bit lower, so we're used to kind of a two percent take rate. And I think there it's a lot cheaper. Um, and then uh, the payment is through Alipay a lot of times. Uh, and then you know the other thing I would say is most Chinese sellers are embedded in a factory, so they they're like you know they're very very close to where the product is made, uh, and that gives them an edge. Where you know if you're, I saw uh, I saw someone here that works for an auto parts company. So so if you're a, at an auto parts retailer. There's a distributor, there's all these manufacturers, some of them, you know, maybe there's another layer where they took it from China and then, you know, the parts from China and then added something. So, so you can be kind of, you know, you got seven people, you know, two to seven people dipping into the margin stack there. Um, Whereas in China, you're typically factory to, you know, right into the marketplace essentially, maybe through a seller. Um, So because of that also, it also creates this very fast feedback loop. Um, so you'll see like this really interesting things happen where, you know, they, they can, you know, they, they'll they iterate very, very quickly because they have the factory tied to the marketplace. And then this this feedback loop accelerates. Um, the other thing, if, if you stacked the, you know, another challenge for the Chinese seller is... The same widget, if you take currency and try to normalize it, is selling for thirty to forty percent less in China. Um, so, so you know, the good news is in the U.S. for the same, you know, same item. And if you looked at the currency rates, you're probably going to get thirty percent more for that in the United States than than in China because it's so competitive and people are are very value oriented in China. So, so you have more more P to put it, you know, more margin to kind of put into things in the U.S. So, those are some of the interesting differences. Because of that, you know, most Chinese sellers, their strategy, they, they actually make a lot more money selling out of China. So they'll sell into Russia. Um, they'll sell into uh, you know, Mercado Libre, Brazil, South America. They'll sell um, one of the most popular uh, destinations is the marketplaces in Australia and then obviously the U.S. and Europe. Um, that's where you know pre-pandemic companies like Wish and AliExpress were making a, a, a ton selling these kind of hot products coming direct from China.
1: Good points. Uh, great question, Ricardo. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you, guys. Have a good one.
1: Thanks. Uh, should we go to Scott Landry next, or do you want to take some of the the typed in questions, Scott? No, yeah, let's do uh, let's do Scott, and then we'll hit the typed in ones. Awesome, uh, Scott. You uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I feel outnumbered by the Scots now. <laughs> you are. Yeah, I've got I- three Ts between us.
4: Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm also here in, uh, well, just outside of Raleigh, I'm in Morrisville, North
1: North Carolina. I heard Morrisville is much cooler than Raleigh. It is much cooler. <laughs> it is much cooler. Um,
4: and I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. I, uh, a few weeks ago, you guys had on Scott Divott, another Scott on the show, and he talked about this being the time to not sit back and cut costs, but to actually invest in companies. Uh, invest for company owners to invest in their companies, saying that those failing to prepare, prepare to fail. We've also seen a lot of non-essential Amazon sellers struggle during the first few weeks of this pandemic. You know, a lot of come back strong since then. But and, you know, these companies have had to pivot and develop a multi-channel approach to their business. So This sets up my very fun question. Uh, Do you know of a software that that you would recommend to all your listeners that would help them with managing a multi-channel approach that includes uh, maybe a single user interface to manage all their e-commerce operations such as, I don't know, content inventory, orders, marketing, advertising, product content feeds?
1: Scott, Jason, would you know of anything like that?
2: Drawing a blank over here. Jason Guyther.
1: Yeah. I thought you were gonna say channel advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scott,
2: full disclosure, Scott's an account manager over at Channel Advisor. So he's uh he's teeing up the old channel advisor, what, what we do there.
1: Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, right.
2: yeah, a lot of people start, you know, the uh, you know, to be fair, a lot of people, especially smaller sellers, they'll start with a Shopify, a big commerce, WooCommerce, Magento, uh, one of those offerings, and then they'll have little bit of an ability to sell into other marketplaces. Sometimes their shipping software will get them a connection to another marketplace. Um, but then ultimately they'll grow out of that. And that's, that's kind of what we've built for over at ChannelVisor. So,
1: yeah. Uh, so certainly like, I think there's different answers at different uh, tiers of business and maturity of businesses. Like I'll be honest, I don't generally think of there being uh complete unified suites that are super successful for a broad range of customers. There definitely are, Unified suites in particular niche markets that really focus on a vertical. So you can find a unified suite for a furniture retailer or for a quick serve food restaurant that are that are pretty comprehensive. Um, It like Shopify is inching towards being a unified suite. They're adding more and more of those services. And if I were a betting person, I would say like they're eventually going to get to a pretty comprehensive unified suite. That seems to be an important part of their strategy and hopefully they spend their money there instead of the stupid shop app that we could talk about later um the uh there're there, at certain niches there are there are some interesting unified suites so like Oracle owns a product called netsuite um which actually has like a pretty comprehensive set of e commerce order management channel management um and uh outside of those uh you end up there are some some tools that cover a lot of what you just discussed so there there are um PIMS that are expanding into feed management, content management, um, and starting to, you know, do more of those kinds of things. So I think of like a Salsify, um, you know, as, as becoming more comprehensive um, for those kinds of things. But but uh, like, honestly, there's no dominant player. Like in the enterprise level, the enterprise players are mostly pretty sucky at it. Like by, uh, by far, the... The best, uh, in terms of a unified suite amongst the enterprise guys, now would be uh, uh, Salesforce. So, uh, Michelle, that was on earlier, could talk to you about that. That's all I got. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I
4: appreciate it. Just I was just kind of cheeing up the uh, channel advisor commercial.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I can't believe Scott didn't send me one to play. Cool. All right. So over in Q and A, Kelly asks,
2: "Has anyone done any good research showing the correlation between retailers being owned by private equity and their subsequent inability to react to COVID?" Um, seems that PE ownership equals underinvestment in tech equals poor ability to respond to changes in business climate. But it'd be great to see some research. Yeah. The um. So so if if uh you know seems like Kelly's pretty. Read up on this whole topic, but there there are this this tier of investor called private equity firms. We call them PE firms in the industry, and uh, they essentially go do buyouts. And what drives their thinking a lot of times there, there's a you know like anything there's a broad spectrum of PE firms. They're not all like this, but a lot I would say eighty or ninety percent are in this genre of they do some financial industry, engineering. So they'll go look at a, a business like a retailer. They'll see that it has a certain EBITDA and cash flow. And then on the other side of the equation, they have super cheap access to cash. So what they'll do is they'll go, um, they'll go buy that retailer. They'll use that cash flow to go buy debt. And you know because they've got this cheap access to debt, they can usually get a lot of debt. So they can go and say this retailer's making 100 million. They can put a billion dollars worth of debt because the you know whoever's providing this debt is just looking for a pretty small amount of cash flow to cover a large debt. They do all that and then. Um, when they when they do that, they effectively have extracted the future value of that retailer's cash flow out, and and that is what drives their their calculations. Um, so it's kind of like running the business through a spreadsheet based on this these kind of metrics of this current view of cash flow. Um, the downside of that is what it does is you know it makes the the company essentially one hundred percent not bulletproof. So you you have a recession, you have something that impacts that cash flow. And then suddenly, you know, the cash flows here, the debt is like, you know, 80% of cash flow, cash flow dips to you know 30%. And now the company is essentially, uh, if it has something on its balance sheet, it will burn to that relatively quickly, and then go bankrupt. So this is ultimately what led to the demise of Toys R Us, uh, you know, India Circuit City, I believe, had a large private equity component. Um, here in the Southeast, Belks got bought by a private equity firm before the pandemic, and I'm kind of interested to see if, if they make it through. Um, you know, pretty much most of the large retailers, with the exception of Nordstrom, Walmart, Costco, the drugstores don't have private equity, but many of the mall based retailers have uh, except Apple um, are, are have a big private equity component. And I think they're at risk. So so I haven't seen a study, but I would say the correlation is very high just because of the the nature of the beast. Um, it's like saying how many slow gazelle get eaten by by lions, you know, pretty much all of them. So so I, th- I would say the correlation would be, you know, almost 100 percent correlated. Um, Jason.
1: Yeah, I would thoughts? agree with your hypothesis. I have not seen a study and it is a smart, interesting question if there is a study, because um, the ones you disproportionately hear about are these leverage buyouts. And they, of course, have, um, you know, really challenging balance sheets and and therefore are super um, vulnerable to covid. Right. And, you know, Scott mentioned the Toys R Us and circuit cities of the world like Neiman is a poster child for that situation right now. Um, the unit economics at Neiman Marcus are pretty favorable. It's a totally viable retailer um, with an unmanageable amount of debt. So, like, you know, uh, sorry to my friends at Neiman, COVID is probably putting you out of, uh, you know, into a a reorganization at at best. Um, But I I don't actually know statistically how much of, of the private equity debt in retail is, um leverage buyout. The, the st- we hear about the over-leveraged ones the most. Um and there's another kind of private equity debt which it, you know tends to also underinvest like the super risky early private equity debt, which is the venture debt. Like those guys, you know, um tend to not be making huge infrastructure investments and and uh that that's going to tighten up at the moment. But there are mezzanine level private equity firms um, that do invest in retailers um, that don't tend to leverage those transactions and and as negatively impact the debt. So, so for sure, all the poster childs we hear about about private equity investors are going to be the negative ones that are killing retail. And look at Scott with his advanced audio video right there. Um, but I like... I'll be honest, I do think there are some private equity firms that are much more beneficial to retailers that we just don't hear about as much. And what I don't have a good sense for is as a total percentage proportion of all retail, like, is are those, those good private equity firms a unicorn or are they 50% and we just don't hear about them? Don't know.
2: Yeah, and I don't know... Um... Uh, Kelly, if you can see the screen here, but um, I did find this article in Retail Wire. Uh, it's pretty current. So July of last year. So, you know, uh, obviously COVID's going to tick this up, but they found 10 out of 14 companies that filed bankruptcy um, had been acquired by PE companies. Um, and then they actually peg it to 1.3 million workers lost their job. Uh, there's a classic movie called wall street um and It's pretty interesting to watch it because the whole premise of Wall Street is uh, effectively a p e l b o um and you know um this one guy has to decide the moral implication of in the spreadsheet world, it looks great. And then he realizes like all these people, I think there's a familial relationship that, that his dad worked with are going to lose their jobs. So so it's oddly one of those weird things that has stood the test of time because it's been the strategy for 30 or 40 years. Uh, you get to see very young Michael Douglas as well. Um, this report I have on the screen references uh, you know, what looks to be a, a more even kind of detailed report on this so that so you know I would Google this this kind of Jim Baker private equity st- stakeholder project and you could probably a lot of times you'll see this kind of puffy article about one of these things then you go find the underlying paper and there's a lot more really interesting data and you can see some you know the actual data that feeds these these studies. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh next question yeah. is from uh did we have a lost the ability to see the hand raised.
1: Yep. Uh Okay. Right. Yep. So we have two right. more and we are coming up on time. So we probably want to uh, just go to speed round a little bit. All right. Lightning round. Um, Karam,
2: hopefully I said your name, name right there. Um, do you think the market for our demand for refurbished products or secondhand e-commerce go down due to the pandemic? Um, you know, I think it definitely will. You know, Jason mentioned returns. You know, I'm not going to really want use clothes and that kind of thing. Um, I think there's, you know, just like I said before, I think what you could do, though, is if I was the seller, I would talk about how I have used, you know, uh, antimicrobials, disinfectants, sanitization. Uh, I'm becoming an expert on this, oddly enough. I'm a computer science guy, but I've had to have a crash course in this. Um, so there is a there is actually an EPA website that you can go to and see which chemicals are COVID effective and can can bear that claim. Um, so you know, imagine you're a seller. What I would do is I would say, you know, I have these actions on this product, and uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, it has been um, sanitized and disinfected, and, and very safe for reuse. Um, so, um, you know, that's interesting. Uh, we did have the CEO of—I always get this wrong—the uh, used person-to-person marketplace offer up. I always. Offer up. I always want to, I use the apparel one. Yeah. Um, And he said they've actually seen, you know, a huge spikes. So, you know, um, we've seen these macro trends of home gym, home office, and they saw in their kind of local platform, a lot of activity going on there.
1: Yeah. I would say like, like most things, there's conflicting trends here, right? Like people are more concerned because of the health um, ramifications, uh, but we're also people are like super economically conservative and value oriented. And so um, previously owned is likely to have a pretty nice spike. And if I were a guessing man, I would say it's net net going to be favorable um, to refurbished and previously owned because I actually like of all the health risks, uh, the virus spreading through items that are several days old, frankly, like it is probably an overestimated risk in most people's mind um there are there are ways to make those things safe and even if the virus still exists on something um that's a day old uh, it likely isn't very uh virulent and it, it it's less likely to infect you so uh i have a feeling over time we're going to find out that you're probably not likely to catch it from a, a, a set of weights you bought from someone else um that sat in your garage for four days before you used them uh but i you know i think those things are gonna sell a lot more so uh uh we'll we'll have to follow that one um and then Daniel goldman with uh what probably is gonna shape up to be our last question uh he referenced uh so just uh for those that didn't know uh uh jason intrigued by your comment in the last podcast that if someone offered you uh amazon web services as a business, I wouldn't say no um but i uh i kind of made the point that amazon marketplace is is uh extremely profitable as well, but since it's not separately broken out on amazon's earnings statements, people don't tend to realize how profitable it is and so my my point in last week's show was everyone talks about Amazon web services being the profit driver of Amazon. I was saying the percent the proportion of amazon's retail business that's a marketplace is probably as good or better business than Amazon Web Services, so he's asking why I said that, and I I may have just inadvertently explained it. Um, the <laughs> the to me a market like it is hard to lose money on a marketplace. Um, the you lose money if you don't make the marketplace work. So if you can't get enough sellers or buyers, that's how how you lose money on a two sided marketplace is you don't get enough of of both sides of the marketplace. But if you have both sides to Amazon. There's no economic risk on the marketplace. There's no carrying cost of goods. There's no inventory. Um, there's no cost of returns. There are none of those things, um, and you take a commission on the successful transaction. So it's it's a hundred percent profit with extraordinarily low overhead and very little, um, cash burden. And so like the unit economics of that are even better than AWS. AWS is highly profitable, but it's actually pretty capital intensive. Um, and so in my mind, the marketplace just scales even more profitably than AWS. And I would argue the marketplace is bigger than, than AWS. So that was my why. And then uh he, the smartest part of his whole question he left for last. Um who cares what Jason thinks? What what would Scott uh think about that same question?
2: This will this will probably surprise you because I was surprised Jason just chose marketplace. In the you know, it's hard to answer a theoretical question because it's so theoretical, but in this scenario, I'm imagining I'm I'm I have the offer to either you know, maybe buy or get AWS or the marketplace, but I would actually take AWS because the marketplace and the retail business and Amazon are inextric- you know, What makes it work also is the fact you have the Amazon offer interlinked there, and then you can actually beat Amazon. That's, that's what makes part of what makes the magic of the hybrid marketplace at Amazon work really well. Amazon keeps the marketplace honest. The marketplace keeps Amazon honest. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of uh, noise uh, or, or there was there was a little bit of a scandal last week we talked about where uh, there's, you know, they always talked about this Chinese wall. There ain't no Chinese wall. They're, they're actually using that data allegedly to I'm figure shocked. out what's going on. Well, shocking. Um, so it would actually, you know, I'm kind of reminded of the eBay PayPal split and that, that actually happened and it wasn't too painful. But I always still pay with PayPal on eBay. So that was like, you know, that was economically terrible I think for eBay to get rid of the whole payment system Um, and then now it's getting all this value from other places so so you know the the short answer is AWS is much more extricable and could have Amazon as a customer without any impact kind of like PayPal ended up being the marketplace because it lives and is integrated so deeply with the retail experience is inextricable and if you if you pulled it apart I think the value would go down significantly
1: There you go. And if you look, the first
2: thing Amazon would do is buy a marketplace and compete with you. And I don't think you want to be in that. (laughs) Uh,
1: And I I would say, if you look at the history of Scott and I's investments, you should take Scott's investment advice. (laughs) Cool. Uh, One thing. One last
2: thing we wanted to do is do a shout out to Jamie Dooley. He could not join us tonight because it's his birthday um happy birthday jamie uh hope you're having some delicious cake or something probably not eating out i would guess but hopefully you're having a fun pandemic themed birthday sorry you couldn't make it tonight
1: yeah uh and and happy uh uh, may 4th day to belated may 4th day to jamie who is another big star wars fan uh, well, Scott, we've blown through our our uh, hour once again, uh, hour and uh, nine minutes. So uh, super grateful for all those listeners that stuck it out with us for the whole time. That was uh, very kind of you. And uh, these are super fun. Uh, and it's it's great to see everyone. Uh, thanks very much for supporting the show. And uh, uh, please be safe out there. And until next time, happy commercing.